0: Yo, we're talking physician wellness, efficiency, medical decision-making, and more with my boy, Brendan Halloran. Let's go. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwejo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us. We're on episode 55. We are flying through these episodes, continuing to bring you high-quality content, and I hope you're enjoying this. We are talking to Dr. Brendan Halloran. He is one of my favorite human beings, so I can't wait for you guys to hear this one. Um, Let's go through some housekeeping things, So First, merchandise. We are going to be supporting, in the month of August, Give a Mile. If you have not heard our episode 54 with Kevin Crow, the founder of Give a Mile— you you need to do this. This is a great organization that connects families of palliative patients using air miles. People donate air miles or, or cash and um, miracles happen. And so uh, props to Kevin Crow for their organization and what they're doing. And yeah, our merchandise this month, our proceeds will be going to that. Next, I got to tell you about our first virtual summit, low-carbon ketogenic approaches to health. August ninth, three thirty featuring Ivor Cummins, Dr. Paul Mason, and Joy Kitty. You know, the reason once again we're doing this, COVID nineteen. People are dramatically affected when their metabolic health is impaired, when they are diabetic, when they are hypertensive, when they're obese. And I wanna continue to promote ways that you could achieve better metabolic health and low-carb and ketogenic approaches, this is one of many tools that could be put into your arsenal. So please join us on the conference, $20 for the basic package, 50 bucks for the premium, which gives you continuing medical education credits, it gives you, uh, you get to be part of the Q&A, and you'll get the video, audio, and notes content directly sent to you. So please join up, see the links in the show notes for the for the, the, the virtual summit you guys are going to love it. Love it. Okay. Brendan Halloran. Okay. He is one of my favorite human beings in the world. He was a classmate of mine, graduated of the medical class at U of A 2005. He was the MC at our wedding. He is one of the funniest human beings that I know. And so, you know, I think you're going you're gonna to enjoy our interactions. Um, well, hopefully, you'll enjoy our interaction. But we get down to realness. We talk about physician wellness how there's a ton of burnout in our professions and ways of mitigating some of that we talk about his brilliant clinic on how he can reach out to more patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease and how innovative they are they're being and how how much this could be scaled Uh, we talk about how we can make better decisions in medicine and specifically using artificial intelligence and more. I really think you guys are going to enjoy this discussion and this was this was recorded back in January but um I think all these topics pertain to everything that's happening now. He is a gastroenterologist. He's joined the University of Alberta Division of Gastroenterology in 2013. Specializes in inflammatory bowel diseases. He recently got appointed as associate professor Congratulations, my boy. And he's full of knowledge. He's one of the few people in Alberta that have are so specialized in, in inflammatory bowel disease. And so I'm ultra proud of him. He's a tremendous human being. And without further ado, Dr. Brendan Halloran. Brendan Halloran. Hello. Welcome to the yeah. podcast. What a pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. What
1: uh what a beautiful thing you're doing.
0: Hey, you know what? We're changing the boogie, and I gotta tell you, my my friend, I've been trying to get you on for a while. And first of all, congratulations on me—you're now an associate professor.
1: Yes, my my official probationary term comes to an end. <laughs> That's what they call it. They call it your probationary term. My second probationary term comes to an end in July. I start as an associate
0: professor. Oh, man. Congratulations. Awesome. Thank I, you so much. Thank you so much. I'm, I hope that's the only probationary term that you have to deal with. Almost. Uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what I can. I can't say here. So, yeah. No, let's <laughs> just proceed. <continue it> <sighs> We're already off of the bank. So, I got to tell people. Yeah. One of my fondest memories of you. Okay. I might have said this in the intro already, but you you know, you emceed our wedding, which was fantastic but a wonderful wedding oh all you can eat baby back ribs you know what i'm saying
1: there was though that i was so upset about that i recall oh
0: Oh, i mean people took off their shirt just so they wouldn't mess up their flow totally made that up but my favorite memory of you in medical school was when we were trying to deal with what you do with your arms when you spoon somebody do you remember this Mm -hmm. so we were in uh As the big spoon, I think. Yeah, was, as a big because spoon. Yeah, because which, which
1: we had both discussed was not the, my position of choice, but it's fine. Yeah,
0: no, exactly. So I like to be the big spoon. So right, we right. did the display in the cafeteria at the University of- I think it was on a table. Oh, it was totally on a table. Where else are we going to do this? We're not going to go on that floor. That's because, disgusting. Yeah, man. That's MRSA and such. But like uh, <laughs> we, yeah, so we go on the table. Mm-hmm. I put, put try and figure out where to put my arms with you. And I, I, I discovered it's probably that the, the hand underneath is going underneath the pillow, dog. That was, uh, I think, the conclusion of it, that.
1: It's a pretty natural place, actually, because it kind of slides under the other person's head. And then you're kind of cradling them. And you yes, can, you can kind of touch or mask their face at any time. <laughs> nice. You know, if they are sleeping, you just kind of yeah. like, you know, touch them a little yeah. bit and they wake up and then they're like, well, no. and then you, <laughs> you know,
0: and then you whisper sweet nothings. <laughs> that's right yeah you can just yeah I just blow <laughs> <him>. of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so, okay this is totally what the listener needs i okay. feel yeah i just
1: feel this is such a drop in quality from everything else i've heard on the show which was I, something that i felt bad about that's actually why i've been delaying
0: <laughs> just, oh my God. i wanted you to get your
1: show to get its sea legs hey, you
0: know work. what people need to relax That was my
1: pelvis. Yeah, I got to tell you, one of my favorite things about the show is that I still think that you very much bring your personality and your exuberance through on that show while keeping a really serious and interesting tone, you know, as you discuss these things. So I was surprised about that because I thought that, you know, maybe you would have not brought quite as much, as you say, flavor to it. But no, you do. Oh, thanks, man. I love it. It's It's really great.
0: It's actually one of the things that, uh, first of all, I appreciate that, but one of the things that I'm trying to preach to the kids these days, like the the residents is to try and be your authentic self as much as you can. Cause mm-hmm. I, you know, I feel like residency kind of destroys your soul because you have to tailor your behavior and your, even your approach to medicine based on who your staff is. Cause you don't want to ruffle feathers. You want to get into that fellowship program. You want to get that staff position. Yeah. So Yeah. It's one of my big areas where it's, you know, and it it took a while too for me to be myself in general around, you know, my colleagues at work, but oh man, how freeing is it to be like talking about one arm cartwheels during rounds? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, I would probably count it out by saying, yeah, it's a, it's, it's an interesting balance. I think medicine is, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and saying that often when you're, you know, in the room with patients and stuff. There was a long time where I almost felt like I was watching myself do it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it, you've got that moment where you're in these spots and you do become a bit of a different person because you have to be. And it's, it's, it is an interesting transformation as you move Mm -hmm. forward. But I I totally agree with you that the, the things that made you want to do it, the the person that you are, when you started that journey, you want to try to preserve that person because there's the real risk of it getting swallowed up. You know, that's, I think, um, Something that probably we don't talk about enough is uh, healthcare provider, you know, the mental health and the yeah. things that go along with it, and the stresses and all the things that can change as you go through that. It's a it's a real it's a, it can be a dangerous profession, you know, if you can't keep some balance and some real perspective on everything that's happening. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. So let me ask: What do you do for wellness and keeping your head straight? Because you know, I I obviously know you well, but this is something we haven't really talk, talked about is how we try and keep that balance, keep our heads straight. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. You know, I think that I would start by saying that for the first, for a long time in my career, I was really bad at it. And I almost had this old school mentality about it that, um, you know, I come from my father's a physician and my brother is a physician. So you come from this mentality and, you know, I feel like a lot of that when I came up was pretty old school about it, you know, and, I didn't. And that was not to say that that either of those two people espoused that belief, but that was just the way that I came up feeling about it. And that mm-hmm. it was a really serious job. You have to be serious about it. This is what you do. You're committed. And when people showed uh, that they were struggling or there was weakness, I, I feel like I wasn't always sensitive to that initially. But then, you know, I went through a couple personal relationships in my life with people that I dated or a very good friend of mine uh, who was in medicine. And he, he actually committed suicide. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And he was a physician that I worked with very closely. And we were really good friends. And that has completely transformed the way I see it, you know, that I see that as a real struggle, in in probably all professions, but you know, I can't speak to what it's like to be a lawyer or another kind of any high stress profession. And but I think in medicine, it's something that we just don't get taught very well. Mm -hmm. I feel like balance and Wellness were not a focus for us, and when they used to talk to us in medical school or residency about burnout, I don't know. I just kind of accepted that the way that feeling was just something you had to have.
0: Did did we and get did we get talked about it? Did they talk about think,
1: it back then? I think it was twenty minutes. You know, like I mean, there was almost nothing about it when we came through. Because I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but me and you started medical school almost twenty years ago now. Yeah, I don't.
0: Yeah, I don't need a reminder of that. Like I feel it everywhere
1: (laughs) yeah it was actually you know that september was 9 11. yeah we started first
0: week of school Uh, that's right yeah
1: first second week driving in and you know i don't think they ever talked to us about it really you know there was a couple here i remember in residency at the u of a they had one session on physician burnout you know but i i feel like there's such a stigma still attached to mental health and you know nobody would be upset If you had had an MI, or if you you know had severe hypertension or poorly controlled diabetes, they'd be like, "Well, we're just going to have to work on this. Take some time off. Get well." But you know, if you are suffering major depression or anxiety or that sort of thing, I feel like the medical world really sees that as weakness. Still, Uh, I I don't think mental health is dealt with well in general. I think you know, I was listening to one of your casts, a really great cast by a a child psychologist, Mm -hmm. and you know, I thought that was an incredible. Look at that and I, I think that we still do a terrible job at it and I mm-hmm. think from the physician point of view it's it's really hard because you want to push people you want to be pushed it's a really serious job and you can't take it lightly and you need people to be committed right there's no question about that we, we've all committed to this and and it is no matter how you see it you can't see it as a, a punch clock job you've got to be pretty mm-hmm. committed to it and so you've got to get that and you really have to push you know, I was really pushed as a trainee. I'm sure you were really pushed as a trainee to do mm-hmm. well, and the people who were the hardest on you often had the greatest positive impact because feedback is difficult, right? Getting mm-hmm. bad feedback and saying, "Hey, you know this is stuff you can improve on, this is where you're weak. It's hard to hear because you're working so hard, but it's really important in your development. But I think at the same time, man it, it's it's such a stressful time in people's lives, especially in their early training, they're stressed about jobs, they're stressed about how they're doing, they want to learn. And then there's this other pull now, which is a really appropriate pull to wellness and balance, but I I don't know. So I've seen it, you know, I've seen, I've seen these careers really destroy lives, uh, you know, both in terms of people having to take, take time off and be really devastated by it. And then I've seen it take lives in, you know, in the setting of probably preexisting mental disease from, from really strong physicians, you know, like these weren't people who you would ever know that about them. Like they came to work worked really hard they were rocks everybody depended on these people they were excellent at what they did and it just can really i think it can really push you to a, a difficult dark place and people collapse if they don't have the supports in place so maybe that's a really long way of getting to what your question was what, what do i do for wellness you know yeah i i depend incredibly on the people around me i find people are the biggest thing you know I'm very close with my family, you know, personal relationships, the the person that I'm in a personal relationship right now, the person I'm dating, it's, it's huge. You know, the, the time you spend mm-hmm. um, is is massive. I find that time spent with other humans, it, make, it takes you away from the stress of the job and makes mm-hmm. you focus. But I've also, you know, lately come much, much bigger into things like meditation, a little bit of, tri- I've dabbled in that, tried it. I've, you know, read books more about mindfulness and, and that whole practice, because I've become really interested in it, mm-hmm. um, that I think that I feel that you can really retrain yourself and you can really retrain your brain to think differently and to behave differently. It's not like, it's a little bit like trying to quit smoking, I think. You're yeah. you you going to backslide, you're going to you get better and then you're going to get worse and you have to keep working on it. And then, you know, I still like all the other things, physical activity, I think is really big, you know, staying active, going to the mm-hmm. gym. I do, uh, you know, just the kind of training part. I've been, I've been boxing for the last couple of years. Just, nice. um, yeah, but just, you know, not sparring because it would be, Oh man,
0: remind me to tell you about a sparring editing. story after this, but yeah, no, don't <laughs> spar.
1: Yeah. It's, I can't break my hands or my head, you know? Uh, so that's, <laughs> uh, so that makes it sparring. But I love the physicality of it and going to a place like that where I'm just going to give him a quick shout out if that's okay.
0: Oh yeah. Um, for real. Pan-
1: Panthers gym in Edmonton is probably bang for buck. The best thing I did through like the struggle I had been in the last couple of years where I struggled with a lot of stuff after this person's death, depression, going there, you know, and having like a positive atmosphere with positive people was far and away the, one of the best things I did. Oh, you know, man. you get into it. These people were positive. They wanted you to work hard. There was such an, such an amazing atmosphere in that little place that yeah. it's, it's like you, you could transform your life with that as a cornerstone of it but then you know there was also lots of other stuff i tried you know psychology medications that sort of stuff uh, that all that all stuff came into it you know and um and it's it's been an interesting journey
0: yeah buddy like um i mean you touched on a, a lot of points here that i think are worth exploring but one thing though in terms of the wellness and your boxing experience like if you think about the keys to good mental health you got a sense of community they're all kind of you know, you have the same goal of getting in shape and getting getting a better get a betting better skill set. You got um, that physicality in there. I mean, I Kathy and I both used to uh, before kids do 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 the boxing thing, and yeah, it was like such a go- great release. The other thing that just kind of that we have in common anyway, I would think about uh, in terms of releases. You know, when you have that cu- more and more of that human connection and having more interaction and laughing you know this is one thing that i absolutely i I, I felt like you know you you at at times can lose touch on like especially we had a fun medical school um, like a med school class where there was a lot of laughing and then you know some of us move on and and but to try and create that kind of atmosphere where it's okay to to laugh it's okay to be because i mean in some ways you know the the comedy side you got to be a little bit vulnerable too you know, mm-hmm. I, which is maybe not intuitive to a lot of people. But, buddy, I couldn't agree more in terms of how we got to be better at addressing this burnout mental illness within our own house and just being more open to hearing people's struggles and being there for each other. You know what I mean? Like being able to sit with our colleagues and, and have that opportunity to say, like, you know, what what's tough right now? And what can, you know, and you know, you might not be able to help physically do something or whatever, but just at times just sitting there with them and, and being empathetic could really go a long way. And I just, I think it's better for sure, but it's just like that the amount of stuff that we need to do to get there to for it to be more open, I think is like, we still have a lot of work to do, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You know, there's, it's just you, I think you just have to be aware of the people around you and how at risk they are. And, um, and, and that mentality is difficult to maintain because, mm. you know, I, you know that when you do a lot of clinical medicine, uh, you can come into conflict with people fairly easily, you know, other services. Mm. And the strange thing is, is that everyone's on the same team, but somehow in all of that, you get lost in it and you can get into these conflicts. But I think what you really have to keep in mind is that this is a stressful job um, mm. and that people are at risk and that when someone's difficult sometimes and you're not sure why, I think you have to really be open to that idea that they may be going through something that you don't understand. A
0: hundred percent.
1: And if you do that and you can step back from it, then you don't, you kind of, it, you avoid those situations by saying, okay, well, listen, I'm not sure, you know, why this has come to this point or where we're at here, but you can step back. And, um, and I think the other thing, like you're saying, is don't
0: take it personally.
1: Also, yeah. You know? it's, it's not personal, right? That it's this never is, about you. Yeah. And I think with your trainees or the people around you, the people you work with, I think that it is really important, like you said, to have an environment where people feel a, that they can be open about what's going on in their life and um, that they uh, feel safe, as well as that they can laugh. You know, I think that uh, that has been something that you and I share a lot of that we just uh, really like to have fun. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you can do that in and outside of work, as yeah. long as you maintain, you know, principles of. Patient respect, and you know that you're serious about the job you're doing. But there's a lot of room to have fun, and I think you have to because otherwise, this job um, is is really a lot. Yeah. You know? So that's a really important part of it that you have to have something there that people, you know, it's got to be enjoyable. The yeah. Job has and, to. Be, and right?
0: it's not mutually exclusive. Like you can nope. laugh and and have that respect for the patient. 100%. um You know, share the laugh with the patients. Um, you know, I think that's something that you and I have really, you know, uh, appreciated over the years um the one thing you touched on too that i I've, I've learned it took a while to learn was the whole conflict how conflict could be you know i just mentioned how it's not it's not about you but really how important it is to really kind of dive into why that conflict is there i got one example non medical is Kathy and i were getting our new license plate and the line up at the DMV or whatever you you call it was massive, and the lady that we got was like so creased. She was so upset about something, <laughs> and she was giving us attitude like crazy. Yeah, right? Yeah. And if anybody that knows me is like, I was about to go off. I was about to give her an earful. Like, what did we do to deserve this attitude? Look <laughs> at this lineup. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, anyway. So, Kathy, my my beautiful wife, grabs me by the arm before I, I go off. And she says to the to the ladies, like, looks like you're having a, a, a tough day. Is, you know, is there anything uh, is there anything we could do to make it easier or something along those lines? And she just melted like she was just totally decompressed. And he's like, yeah, it's been a real tough day. It's been so busy. And she said something else about her personal life. And she was the nicest human being after that. And I'm like, Kathy, that Jedi trick. I'm gonna, I, I, I like, I got news. Res- <laughs> I, I always got respect for mommy, but I was like, this is another level. You know what I'm saying? I was, uh, yeah. I mean, le-
1: it's about, that's about, I mean, human contact. And actually, you know, people respond to, I think, you know, you caring, no matter who you are. I mean, you know, little things can really change your day and that works in the hospital medicine all the time, right? That smiling at somebody or asking someone how they're doing, um, I don't know. I find those things transformative. Even when you know you you'll see a patient, and you're like, "Hey, how are you doing today?" Sometimes when they ask back and they'll say, "Oh, how are you doing?" I I'm I'm, I'm still kind of taken aback by that sometimes. Yeah, and totally. then, but it but it really matters. Like you're like, "Oh, that's thanks,
0: thanks for asking." They're, you know, they're seeing right. they're seeing yeah, It's like it's that. everyone just wants to be seen once in a while, you know? Yeah. And it's it's funny you say that. It's it I, I feel the same way when when a patient once in a while says, like, oh, it must have been a busy weekend or whatever. And I'm yeah. like, you're sitting there in the nice bed and you're you've you got all these health issues and you actually took the time to think about what our experience is. It just it's so touching when that happens. You know, well, especially what I,
1: mean? I think when yeah, when you get something reflected back, and I'm sure you find this all the time because you know, you wear this uh, ICU hat and this palliative care hat. I found that um, some of the most rewarding experiences and the people who really thank me the most are patients where I don't know that I've done much for them except for be there. You know, they're in yeah. a tough place, be no disease and you're just there with them. And, you know, you kind of offer, look, this is what we can do. And, you know, there's, you tell them that the outcomes might not be good, but you're there with them. And mm-hmm. those people I, I find are just, can just be so amazingly uh, appreciative and and warm um it's it's an interesting phenomena that i kind of encountered over and over when you break these bad news this bad news or whatever but but it's it's always i feel i find patients always surprise you um with how they are and um it's a it's an interesting dynamic you know mm-hmm.
0: absolutely so brenda <laughs> yeah <laughs> Let me ask yes. you yes. this this is going to be my this, original this, this question. Is, this
1: has been my my name with Quad for a long time. And then I think that the joy, do you remember the real joy was when I transitioned to a resident from a medical student. There was like a misprint on my uh lab coat. They give you an official lab coat and it was Brenda Howard.
0: <laughs> and I think and there was a lot of joy that's just around it. Oh me. man, I don't even know how we came up with that name, but um I love it though. Um listen, this is going to be my original question actually. Yeah. Whether it's in your world, like we touched about we touched upon a major issue in terms of uh physician wellness, but in your world as a gastroenterologist, where would you like to see healthcare improve? Where can we do a better job?
1: Oh, man, I mean, this is I think what's so interesting about uh your cast and what you're asking because I just feel that there's so much I want to see improve. I think um, where do you start with that? Uh, I guess I would love it if the system was more efficient in terms of how they utilized the physicians for what they're doing. Mm. And also, I think far and away, you know, I have a huge practice of inflammatory bowel disease patients. That's that's probably the the main. Portion of my practice.
0: So that's like so, Crohn's, Crohn's and, alter- and ulcerative, ulcerative colitis. colitis
1: right? I see some people with celiac microscopic colitis, but ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease so you know, this chronic, destructive, um, uh, inflammatory condition of the bowel. These people, they're once you got them, they're yours. They stay with us, and mm-hmm. they're a little bit like, um, you know, the opposite, or I guess they're similar to a transplant patient. You know, you're just trying to give immunosuppression so that they can keep. Their organs, as opposed to giving immunosuppression, so they can keep someone else's organs. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see these people, and you get to know them, but access for them is such a difficult thing. And managing the data that they generate is a difficult thing. And, what does that mean? Well, you know, these chronic patients. Um, if if you work in you know uh, transplant uh, inflammatory bowel disease, probably a lot of rheumatoid arthritis. They g- generate a lot of data, so they generate lab results. They generate. Um, you know, data is what drives the, our decision-making, you know, those things. So it's your CRP, your fecal protectin, your, your last endoscopy reports, your imaging results. And they're generating this all the time. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to take that data and assimilate that into their care in the setting of, I don't know, 500, 600, 700 other patients that you're managing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, that's a, it's a big task because you're doing that while actively managing other people, right? So there's the kind of, there's the passive or less active management side, and then there's the active management side. And I think that being able to manage that data better or having systems that was a bit more automatic in how it it managed it would be great. The other thing is access for them, right? We're really lucky at the University of Alberta. In our IBD clinic, we've got some phenomenal IBD nurses. That work with us we have one nurse practitioner who works partially with us and we've got several ibd nurses who are ahs funded we've had some that we've worked with industry to get some extra funding for and we've been working really hard to try to organize that in a way that helps to serve patients you know in the last few years i developed richard fedorik who is a really great mentor of mine big name in ibd in Mm -hmm. canada who passed away just last year he um I came to him when I started and I said, you know, I feel like we're spending a lot of time seeing people who are well or seeing people in clinic who should have been brought to endo seeing people in endo who could have been brought to clinic. And I, I said, you know, I really want to create maybe like a consultant in a box that can go out to a patient we can get some data from them and we might not have to bring them to clinic. And he was really supportive of that. We got some, we found some funding. We talked to, um, one of the biologic companies. And so what we developed in the last little while was, um, what we called the Ulcerative Colitis Outreach Community Outreach Project. And so we developed a questionnaire that had symptom indices and we developed uh, a little box that went out to them for their blood work and a fecal calprotection, which is a stool marker of inflammation that you can use as a surrogate to endoscopy. Mm-hmm. And so we would send that out to a patient and it would tell us how they were doing. One of the last flare was, were they sick right now? Were they taking their medications? There was a medication compliance questionnaire.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that came back and I had a it was a clinical assistant. She wasn't a nurse or had medical training. She was actually actually a medical student now. And she would take all that information. It populated it into a database. And then it generated a letter that would go to the physician who was taking care of that patient. Would say, just to let you know, your patient's doing this well in the community. This is the, the blood work. What would you like to holy do with sh- that?
0: Yeah. shit.
1: Yeah. So we generated that. And that was, um, we've just kind of looked at our first hundred patients that have gone through that. And people loved it, right? I mean patients wow. loved it, that, that our doctor's office was being proactive and saying, we we want to know how you're doing, not you're going to have to call us. And, and so, I mean, that's just the start of what you want to do, right? Because you want to have a constant dialogue with your patients.
0: Man, that's like, I'm not gonna, I, I mean, I don't know if we talked about this before, but that's kind of like revolutionizing healthcare a little bit with the chronic illness patients, man.
1: Well, that's what we, yeah, I really felt that, and, you know, and I felt that the questions that I know what I'm going to ask you when you come to my office, you know, these are Mm -hmm. set questions. It's not going to surprise you, you know, There, I know what I want to know from you as a patient. And now you may have concerns that are novel in all of those interactions. And it's impossible to replace the physician in that context, you know, with a box, but for the general disease management, there are certain things which need to be done. And I think this is reflected partially in algorithmic care, which I think is really important is the next is a different phase of that as well. You know, mm-hmm. this is, but it's this idea that you can do things in a way that pulls the physician out of it. And sometimes, and we've, I know me and you have had this conversation before the physician complicates things overly or misses things because of the type of day you're having, you get paged in the middle of a visit, oh, man. It, you know, those, those things in healthcare really pull you away. So I think algorithmic care, this thing where you could kind of just, dis- set this program up and so we use that program we talked back to the company they were developing a simpler a a similar kind of program with a nurse who was able to have use touch points with Mm -hmm. patients and as outpatients and we've kind of developed that now into a program uh, in combination with what they've done with their funding and it's it's um it's I'm really excited about it. Um,
0: okay, but- I just I just want to summarize this so that all the like my mom can understand what's going on. Yeah, so sure. Basically, you got somebody with a chronic illness. They get a questionnaire in the mail or.
1: So oh, here's what, here was the problem. So we had to go through multiple iterations. This, this project took three or four years okay. and uh, you know, there were some really great people involved. So it started that we were sending stuff out to people. Well, it turns out nobody well, opens answers. their mail. Yeah, exactly. Nobody answers it. And then we worked through different things. What we found the best was we had a person who called the patients. Nice. So they called them and they said, I can send this to you. You can do it. Or we can spend five minutes on the phone going through this.
0: And I bet they loved it they talking loved it. to somebody about their health. They 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 took the
1: five minutes, and the great thing was, you know, um, my uh, the student who actually did a master's with me and eventually went to medical school, Candace Beelman. I'm going to give a big shout out to her. Shout she, out! Shout out to Candace. Uh, Sup, she, Candace. Yeah, she, uh, <laughs> she she would enter this into RedCap, our database, and then. They would get their blood work done, and when everything was complete, the hardest thing to get them to do was uh, obviously the stool test. This is something that we still struggle with patients because nobody loves loves that. But mm-hmm. when they had all that information, you know, it was a very quick way to get this stuff done, and then we could present it to the physician. It's not a perfect system, but what we found was that that human contact was still really important. We we tried you know mailing stuff out, sending surveys, all this stuff. It didn't work. Uh, you had to have a person. Talk to the cat. And th- yeah. that, that to me has not been replaced. Um, and you know, that human element is important and to catch people, right? People are busy, uh, they're, they're in their day outside of their work and you had to really sit them down. But when we did that, we found the results were really great. Wow.
0: So literally you contact them mm-hmm. the, over the phone, you see how they're doing, generates a letter to the family doctor. Or it like was to, it was to their specialist here. Or the but spe- okay, sp- the yeah. specialist.
1: So because there was a, our practice is made up of multiple physicians who work in the IBD clinic, and then yeah. so we we asked them if we could call their patients, you know, the, to say is it okay if we enroll them in this clinical protocol? And they said yeah, and so we we did that.
0: And they pro they proactively find out how their patients doing, so they could decide. Oh man, I should see Laura earlier than that three month appointment based on how things are going.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's right. And so the um the, the survey that we gave them to them after, we had pre-printed out kind of a sheet that said, Would you like to delay this person's clinic appointment, keep it the same, move it up, have them seen directly into endoscopy? We changed that or you know, have maybe you know have a flare protocol sent out to them. So that was just the way that we'd given those physicians options and that way we could look at data capture afterwards. Wow.
0: Yeah. But still, man, like you literally, you know, you're you're being more efficient with everyone's time, the patient's time. The, the the specialist time the subspecialist time like and, when we're taking it up, and they're getting uh, better care
1: yeah because i mean the gp it's tough for them right they, they've got these patients they come to them and they say well i don't know you know like they, they're sometimes nervous to to augment the medications but these mm-hmm. patients were all um why we started with this patient group it was all people who were on five asas which is the bottom layer, layer of therapy for ulcerative colitis you know they're kind of a topical yeah they're topical anti-inflammatories and they can easily be optimized with steroids and biologics and so we looked at that patient group specifically because they're very easy to move into another rank therapy Mm -hmm. although you know that's a whole separate discussion because those that next level therapy is expensive and it's crushing healthcare right now you know transformative therapies but but an immense uh, cost. Mm-hmm. But the, the, pr- the point of this project was, you know, it's like you said, and you know, like you've talked about in your cast and the things that you're looking at is how do you optimize the care that I can provide? Because there's only one of me and I'm the bottleneck. Yeah. Clinic space is the bottleneck. Uh, endoscopy space is a bottleneck. So you can, you can want to see all these people, but if you can operationalize something where these people are, are cared for in a way that there's outreach to them, they don't need that resource. You can, start to prioritize people who are sick move people who are well into a different kind of model or have them checked on differently i think that really changes what you're doing because what i was became quickly aware of when i came back was everyone was getting these follow-ups but not everybody needed it right. and some people needed it much more frequently and we weren't always great at telling who that was going to be right uh, so you know there's been other work done um, that's looked at kind of algorithmic approaches to these kind of patients, which has been some really big studies in IBD where they've looked at if you follow an algorithm, that's not based on physician opinion, really. It's based right. on several markers. You follow that algorithm, you do things based on an algorithm and they've done this in both kind of a multi-center cluster randomization. So they took one hospital, they had to follow the algorithm. The other hospital, they, they did what the doctors wanted. wanted to do. Yeah. And the people who follow the algorithm, they did better. And so this is another thing that you can move people into algorithm. It doesn't mean there's no physician contact. It's just that you follow the program and you say, look, when you just, this happens, you do this and you keep to escalating people to that point or moving their therapy along. They do better when you kind of take out this, the chronic fiddling of the healthcare system. So you know our approach has been twofold. One is to um, out, outreach to people, try to increase access. That's a huge thing, and it's mm-hmm. constant feedback I get in my clinics. There's not enough access, right? I, it's hard for me to get a hold of you. It's hard for me to get a hold of you, nurses. I can't, I don't get calls back the way I want on the phones. We work mm-hmm. on that all the time. I have a clinical email that I established uh, that's specific for patients. Um, you know, we're trying to increase that access in our new healthcare system. We switched to called uh, Connect Care, where eventually the whole province in Alberta will be on one medical system.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: it actually has a portal for patients where they can view their own labs, where there'll be some access to the clinicians uh, and it'll all be confidential. And that is probably the goal. It's just that I'm sure that you can think as a clinician, and I would think that you also want to maintain some level of protection because it's hard to be completely accessible when you have massive, massive patient.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very very difficult. Yeah. And that ties into the wellness part too, but (laughs) right. Because um, you
1: still have to have something that exists outside of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. but Holy cow. There's so much there. I, the thing that I'm, you can hear the excitement in my voice is because (laughs) of, you know, this approach in terms of, you know, the, I'll talk about the algorithmic, part, but in terms of like engaging the patient um, before coming into clinic, this is something that's, I don't care what you say, is easily scalable. I can think of doing that for diabetic patients. I can think about doing it for patients that have cancer that is in remission. I can think about tons of chronic illnesses that need like rheumatoid arthritis, like tons of chronic illnesses that would benefit from this approach. That's number one. Number two, I think there's an economic win from this approach, I am convinced. If you ever need help trying to prove that it's an economic win, I'm your huckleberry, because I, I think mean, I would, that, I that is that juicy fruit. That is juicy fruit right that there. That was
1: my big feeling. So here's my feeling. Um, you know, I looked at my clinic structure. Okay, so not only is, you know, I, I feel like my GP that I go to see, he's got a much better clinic structure than I do. So if I go there, there's say six or seven specialists who work in this clinic, right? We all have one room, okay? So I go, I see a patient, I, b- I get them from the waiting room. I bring them into the room. We talk about their problems. Yep, I figure out a plan. They go out, they book stuff at the desk. I finish up, um, you know, the communication at that point. We, it's kind of all done, touch once type of thing. But yeah. what means is that I'm very limited in what I can do in that clinic space, right? Chronic patient, I don't care what anybody says, you know, 20 minutes, probably the minimum that Mm -hmm. you're really going to get them in and out when you've got to sit down with the person. You're committing to that interaction. You've got to work through certain things, you know, and so it really limits what I can do in a day. It's Mm -hmm. not a highly efficient clinic, which would be there are four rooms, right? There's someone who's helping out with all the paperwork and the communication around there. And I'm walking from room to room saying, hey, how are you? Uh, What's going on? That, that, you know, the the food is kind of chewed already. Like someone Mm -hmm. has taken that history. They've said, this is the issues. You come in, you deal with that. I think that there definitely are clinics set up like that, but not ours. And I was finding that it really was limiting how many people I can see, how much follow-up I can do. And there was also, you know, for the sick people and the people that were at important nodes in their decision tree of their medical care, like, you're going to move on to a medication. What are the side effects? What are the problems? I was also doing all of that. And so it's really labor-intensive. And it's really important for patients, but it's just not done in the most efficient way because I'm the bottleneck. So mm-hmm. I'm the one who's helping them make these decisions, providing that those options. And if there's just one of me and this limited space, then we're always going to be at a problem in terms of how much care we can provide. Right. And I feel it was efficient. And I felt that it wasn't the best use of always of, you know, we're a public system. And so the public payer is paying for me to see these people. But if I can get more people cared for, uh, in a more efficient way, then that, that makes a lot more sense for the system. Cause you know, me and you, all physicians were really expensive, uh, units. Our time is expensive.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And, and you, you really want to optimize that time. Mm-hmm. So, so much to say.
0: And the other thing too, when you think about patients that you see in clinic and a lot of you Listeners that have a chronic disease, you know, do let me speak for you, but this is stuff that can really take over their life. Like, I think about some of the IBD patients, like going to the bathroom several times a day, you're trying to be active and playing sports or be functional at work. Like this could literally take over your life. So when you get to see someone like you or get to finally see that specialist and you wanna really engage the system, like, you know, having that five minutes or whatever, a 10 minute booking, like it's not it's not gonna be therapeutic. You do need the time, you know? And so any anything that could allow you to create that space, that time is a beautiful thing. This is why I think this is, did we talk about this before? I don't
1: know if we did, uh-huh. man. I, yes. I, I, I mean, I, if, we kind of mentioned a lot of things, but I think those are really important points. You want people who are in a chronic care pattern to feel empowered, first of all, right? I think the biggest thing is that they got to feel like it's their journey, no matter right. what, you know? And I think that, that probably you find that at the end of life as well, you know, in palliative. Okay. I think I've always found that the biggest thing you can tell patients is, listen, I'm just here to help you along. This is your journey. You make these choices. We'll do I can give you what I think the best options are, and then you're gonna make those choices, but you're driving this. They have to be in the driver's seat. So you empower them, but then you also have to give them access to you when they need you because they have to feel safe and they have to trust that. And that's the only way they're gonna move with you on that journey and do the things that you think they should do. But you know, I'm very clear with everybody I that I take on is that I'm not here to put you on drugs. I'm not here to to you know have things go a certain way. I'm here to give you advice. You've gotta be bought in on this. And until you're bought in, We don't have to do these things because although I want to treat people and get people better, they still have to be in that mindset that they're ready to do it. And if they're not, there's no point because I don't know who's going to get sick because of what I do. Right. I, I know that most people will get better. I know that, or the majority, the hope, you know, but in all these chronic diseases, the real data out there is that despite all the advances, there still are a lot of people who struggle. There still are a lot of people who will have a rough ride and you gotta prepare people adequately for that and and be there with them. And so, you know, the psychology of managing chronic disease is tough too, because a lot of people don't like that aspect of it. They feel like you have to be so engaged with these patients and you can take that on and it goes back to that wellness discussion. But that's part of it. I think you really have to be there with them and sympathetic. And like you said, it can really control their life. Yeah. Whereas my goal is for it to not. So, you know, I actually try to get patients to not be too centered on this disease. Mm-hmm. I tell them, look, your body's out of balance. We're going to try to get it back into balance. You know, they talk to me, well, I'd like something natural. I'd like something this, I'd like something that. And I say, listen, I can offer you what best evidence says is the way to balance your body out. Your immune system is too active. Going to give you a, an antibody or a drug that's going to help to try to balance it out. And then I want you to get on with your life and forget that you have, I don't want this to be who you are. I want you to be X human, who has this issue, but this issue is controlled, or we're managing because I think when people get too caught up on letting a disease define them, or, you know, an event define them, it's problematic, you don't live your life. And so a big part of that strategy is a empowering the patients, letting them know that they make these decisions, but also saying we're here and available for you. And we're here to support you. Because I think a place where we struggle, as opposed to alternative medicine is time, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have the time. We're doing all this stuff. And people go to other sources, which I understand because they want A, other answers. They they want someone who's going to sit down with them and has tons of time. And you have to still convey that to people that, that they're safe. You have access to me. And even if I'm really busy, I'm there for you. And so it's a, it's a, it's a really tough milieu to create.
0: Yeah. And it's so different than my world, to be honest with you. Like, uh, I was just thinking about, you know, trying to learn from what you're throwing down, but you know, I, in in our world, I'm thinking of ICU specifically that you want to get buy-in in terms of your therapies. But your therapies are like life, like life or death. You need to give them. We try not to put too much onus and decisions on the on the family or the the patient, so that there's not that burden of guilt. But in in a, in a chronic illness scenario, they need to be engaged because you know they have that choice of not complying. You know what I mean? Like in our world, really, like they, they, they're, they're going to get their vasopressor. They're going to get into, well, not necessarily intubated, but they'll get um, the therapy they need to survive for the most part. But in your world, they really, they could say no. And, and, and so you really have to, that like psychology element or that engagement element is, is a massive piece.
1: And I think the hard thing that I try to relay to our trainees, docs I talk to and I do different CMEs and all that sort of thing is that they can say no. Like you got to get out of your head that it's my way or the highway. That's not the way this works. This right. is something you're putting on someone, you know, and, and I've had people get really sick or, you know, had major events from the medications we do or the things we've done, you have to prepare them for that. But you also have to understand that these are humans who are, are dealing with a big burden being told they need a medication or that sort of thing. And some people aren't ready for that. And you and I've had a patient, you know, just recently, he was tra- he came to me from another problem, and he's had disease for a long time, he never really was ready to go on medication. He's been with me for three years now, just now is going to finally go on to a medication. But we, we always had the discussion again. I said, look, I think this is where we're at. What's what we need to do? You know, and at the end of that, he said to me, he said, you know, I've, I've really appreciated your approach here that you've never made me go on medication. You've never cut me off from care. You've said you're in this practice. I'm going to tell you this. We'll reassess. And we kept doing that. Now, maybe some people would say, oh, that's too labor intensive. You know, you're reassessing this person. You know what it's going to be. But first of all, I don't know what it's going to be. There's another fallacy in this that physicians always under- say they understand the natural history of disease. And that is not true. These diseases do go into remission sometimes. They, in fact, the, the natural history of Crohn's and colitis for a lot of people is an intermittent flaring disease that is kind of like you know, this, an MS pattern where things don't get worse. They just have intermittent flares, right? And so we always assume that things are going to get worse, worse, worse. It doesn't always. There's lots of patients out there who are living with a disease that flares intermittently. My job is always to try to keep those people as stable and well as possible, but I don't know who's going to yeah. do well without medications and hammering everybody with the same hammer is not the right approach here. You've got to, I think you have to take a more nuanced approach. It doesn't mean that you let patients do things that are dangerous or that you think no. are going to be harmful. And, and that's a tougher conversation. You know, I've got patients who want to do things that are way outside the spectrum of, you know, this in kind of, as we, you know, some people label it Western medicine, but it's not probably an appropriate term anymore. You know, the stuff within medical science, and um, and that's different. You got to step in on those people and say, "Look, this could be harmful to you. This is the problem with what you're doing." But it's different than someone saying, "I'm not ready for your therapy. I'm not ready to do those things." That's that's a real different conversation.
0: Yeah, and you know, you're talking about physicians understanding natural course of some of these chronic illnesses. The other thing we don't understand, well, I shouldn't say understand, we don't experience is the patient experience. Right. What's it like to take that medication on them? You know, we know on we look up on our, our medical books or an up-to-date, oh, 10% are going to have abdominal pain based on uh, this dose of medication. But, you know, we don't really know what that experience is like for them, especially in the yeah. context of You know where they're at in their disease, where they are at in life. You know, so for us to to push hard, and I'll I'll full disclosure, I'm I'm not a I don't have huge patience for what you're describing in terms of you know if somebody I know a medication is beneficial based on literature, and they're telling me why they don't want to take it or whatever. I you know especially in this era of Doctor Google, my my tendency is to put my back up a bit. But you know, this is a very enlightening point. Is that it's what, what is the experience for them? And if you really want them to buy in, you need to be there. You need to be present. You need to hear what, you know, what the struggles are and be willing to, you know, walk the journey with them.
1: Cause I mean, that's, that's their only journey. And it, it, that's an important conversation both ways, you know, and I say that to people, you know, and that's, you know, when I'm on the inpatient service and someone's there with X problem week, and that's probably more in line with what, you know, your day-to-day in the ICU, GI bleeding, bad pancreatitis, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. You know, I can tell the people, I know that this is your first time through this when we're having that conflict about where we should go next. But I'm saying, I tell them, I've seen a lot of this. This is your first time through, but I've seen a lot of that. You know, the corollary to that is that when I'm seeing patients, yeah, I've seen a lot of this. It's easy for me to say, you need a biologic. You're going to need, course, a course, of steroid. You need this invasive endoscopy, but that's their first time through it. And so I think that that conversation goes both ways and i use it both ways. And I always have to remind myself, you know, and I think when you have time and patience with those difficult interactions, you can get those things to turn around in a way that those people will buy in or they'll yeah. trust you or yeah. if it doesn't go a certain way or they leave, you know, and that's okay too. There's, there's no ego in this, right? No. And, and there I mean, couldn't be an ego in it. No, I and mean, you've had this conversation that, you know, your decision making is based on your training, your case is seen. And, you don't have the, the ability to understand all cases that have occurred with that problem and Mm. understand the nuances in every decision you make. We will make calls that are not the right call. We will try to do things that, although you're, you're trying to benefit patients, it doesn't always work that way. And so Mm. I think it's, it's, and as medicine becomes more complicated, and I mean, you are sitting at a very different interface where your patient is at the interface of tons of tests and, and drugs, and you're trying to really balance physiology at an acute phase, you know, I'm looking at more of a long-term phase and Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, it's almost like the mix of gastroenterology and, you know, hypertension management. We're trying to get people to not have big events later on, stay working, stay functional, you know, have a life uh, and also uh, protect them from ill events that can occur through their disease. So it's complicated, but mm-hmm. um, I think you just get a better sense of it the longer you've done it. I, I definitely <laughs> had gotten into things with patients, and but I, the best physicians I worked with always had that approach. That yeah. When people didn't want something, that's okay. It's definitely okay. The patient has to still feel that they're in control, and they should be in control. But you it's also, their body. Have to, yeah. But you also, like you're saying, you have to step in when there's major things coming. You have to say, "Look, I'm I'm concerned about this. This is." This is really what I think we have to do at this point, and and that pressure is really important too. It's So it's uh, I always find that that to be a, a difficult um, space, but
0: yeah, real so talk. Something if you gotta... don't
1: enjoy it, if you don't enjoy being in that space, then the medicine is going to be a hard career for you. Absolutely.
0: I mean, <laughs> I I don't want to uh, digress too much, but one of the best, one of the things that I think everyone would benefit from is a, a little bit of like conflict conflict management and 100%. and and oh, like to. Because I think, the, like we talked about earlier, the biggest thing to me is like how people should not take these conflict personally and it's say it's all being people are being disrespectful for them. It's not about you, you know. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think that Medicine would be a huge a- thing
1: it's such a heavy, in, like there's so much human element in medicine, right? Not only obviously the patient, but everything we do is, is so re- linked to interpersonal interaction. You know, the nurses and other staff you work with, support staff you work with, the other physicians you work with, patient family. It really, I think you really need to be able to work through those things. And also to really be open to looking at yourself as a problem in situations, you know, you have yeah. to have that self-reflection and say, uh, you know, I, I probably blew that or, when you're not doing and it's hard because That's you're a hard, human. Yeah. You're, you're human too because you're going to have bad days right you're going to go into work some days and there's going to be other things going on in your life and yeah. and th- those days are hard but you've got to also set that stuff aside and, and really
0: kind of be present right exactly it's like that peanut butter and jelly sandwich I had We had too much jelly made it too soggy <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you like oh my! at three o'clock in the afternoon. I finally got a chance to eat. Because I know, I, I know, I know that there's one thing that
1: bothers you: <laughs> it's
0: white bread. Oh my god! If, <laughs> I I don't even want to say this to, to anybody out there, but if you want to see me instantaneously, instantaneously gag, is if you got like a white piece of bread for floating in dishwater. Oh, <laughs> I remember uh, that. Uh, right. uh, no.
1: We were in medical school class and you're just like, you know what really bothers me, Brenda? Get, <laughs> wet bread. And I was like, that's so weird, but I do actually understand what you're saying.
0: And there was no, there was probably no segue into that. <laughs> you know, I think
1: it was like in the middle of, you know, like a, a spinal surgery lecture or something. <laughs> bothers me? I don't know. You're like, wet bread. I was like, all right, well, we should probably talk this guy.
0: <laughs> the lecture was deep. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's one thing that we kind of touched on that I, I think is worth hitting hard actually. And some of my listeners have heard me go off on this a bit is decision making. You know what I mean? Like we talked about how your clinic has a, you know, that algorithmic approach to try and really take some subjectivity out of some of these treatment decisions. I honestly, you know, and we're in the revolution of artificial intelligence and and machine learning to try and help us make better decisions. And I think a lot of people are fearful of what that's going to look like in medicine and we could talk about that a bit but i do want to reinforce so that all the dogs listening out there they all think that oh you know i, I i'm one of the least biased clinicians I'm, I'm i'm pretty consistent in my thinking i'm here to tell you or we're here to tell you hell no like there's so much there's in my opinion a bit too much subjectivity in medicine you oh, know it's what way mean? too
1: much i mean i i think i'm i'm totally with you i mean you and I are, are guys, I'm sure with as much ego as anybody, but you have to understand that you are probably blowing it right now. You know, like, <laughs> there's decisions you're making that are the wrong one right now. And that is just part and parcel of the way you approach it, right? That decision-making is based on, like we kind of talked about past experience, all these other things and your training and prior probabilities and that sort of stuff. And there's no way to always be computing that properly. And that's just part of medicine. And we accept that. But, you know, as you move into this phase, like you're talking about a machine learning and AI, we just had a really, one of our uh, fellows actually just presented a bunch of the AI that's occurring in gastroenterology right now. That That's hopefully going to change. And I don't think that it should be seen as a negative thing. And anyone who sees it as negative, I mean, I don't think that's going to replace physicians. It's going to help augment the care you provide because we've just gone through for the last, you know, half an hour, the things that a physician can provide that, No computer can provide it. Mm -hmm. There's a human element to all this that will never go away. And you have to understand that there will be something that's needed for that interface. But this is like not wanting a better stethoscope or, you know, a better medical record. You want the tools that are going to be the best for providing care to patients at all times. And, you know, we're just so I think we're we don't understand exactly why we make the decisions we make all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that. I think that's something that's hard that we struggle with a lot is what are the operating characteristics of the tests we order and the examinations and the questions we ask, right? Mm -hmm. And, And I think I try to stress that with our residents just when we're talking about something as simple as like a CT scan, right? They'll get a CT scan on a patient who, do they have Crohn's or not? They get it. They're like, you know, this person's inflammatory markers are negative and their CT scan is normal. And then I'll ask them, well, what's the operating characteristics of a CT scan in someone with inflammatory bowel disease. You guys speak in English. So how often is a CT scan tell you that something is not there when it's there? How often does it tell you something is there when it's not there? Yeah. And so that's, you know, we took, we talk about that and testing is the sensitivity and the specificity. And I think that we don't always know that, or you don't understand what your operating characteristics. Most are of the their-
0: kids don't know when they right. order the test.
1: But now sometimes,
0: the- I mean, sometimes we don't know.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. But you have to start to understand that, especially the tests you're ordering day to day, you know, that your common things, you've got to understand that because that really pushes you. And that's where I think, you know, the clinician in your index of suspicion, we call that, you know, how often you really think something's there despite stuff telling you it's probably not. Yeah. Because that pushes you in a different direction. And I think that these bigger algorithms, AI, that sort of stuff, it takes more of this into account and it, and it, it, it'll help us define what are the characteristics of things that will help further predict the diseases and the outcomes, and we need that help, right? We're just mm-hmm. we're 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 awash with technology and testing and all that stuff, and I think that that algorithmic care will be massive in how we. Yeah,
0: do. I, I think it's clearly the future. And just just for a common listener, just to exactly explain what this means. So you got a patient like uh, that you're wondering has Crohn's. You order right. a barrage of tests, so blood work and a CT scan, and the way machine learning operates or artificial intelligence is once it it learns from the results. So based on this blood work and this CT scan, it looks like this patient might have Crohn's. And every time there's a new patient inputted, it gets smarter. It realizes, oh, based on these multiple characteristics that we've just inputted, oh, it looks like this is more likely to be Crohn's. And as long as there's that feedback and accurate data, the machine gets smarter and smarter and more accurate. And the thing is. I might be screwing that up a little bit, but the, the key thing though is it takes away that the fact that I didn't eat lunch at one o'clock, I've been fasting <laughs> and, and uh, I've made But eight. you're intermittent
1: fasting? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Have we not talked about this? Anyway, <laughs> stay tuned for the show. The- <laughs> I know what's going on. <laughs> but like you, you haven't eaten that day or you recently saw a case similar to that. So that's fresh on your mind or you're not thinking straight because you've made 400 decisions instead of 200 decisions that day, or because you got into a big fight with your kids, all these little elements can affect your decision-making. And I would ask the listeners, you will never regret reading Daniel Kahneman's Think Fast, Think Slow book in terms of how how inaccurate we are in in terms of judgments and decision-making. And, you know, we hear a lot about like Oh, my gut tells me this, gut tells me that. And don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-gut, but it's got to come from, it can't be out of left field, you know? And, you know, gut often is pattern recognition, to be honest with you. I think that's where, that's probably where a lot of the instinctual stuff comes from. But you'd be surprised at how volatile that could be based on multiple characteristics it's like you know i think it's in daniel kahneman's book but you are more likely like i think it was i forget where the study was but it's it was con it was criminals that were applying for to be freed basically so they had their well i can't think of the word probation probationary mm-hmm. hearings and they were way less likely to be set free if it was near lunchtime <laughs> or at the end of the day so mm-hmm. if it's at eleven thirty. 30 you're screwed. If it's at 430, you're screwed. And this is over several cases, so it's not like, oh, the 1130 cases were, you know, more... You're right. The uh, data set was large. Yeah, the data set was large. Thank you. And so, yeah, man, I think we really got to think about embracing this and I think more objective decisions only benefits patient, And it's more efficient and it saves healthcare money as far as I'm concerned, because I'm mm-hmm. not ordering that useless test that even though the data tells me I don't need it, I'm going to do, I'm going to order that because I felt like it. You know what right.
1: I'm Yeah. I think, you know, the AI, and I'm not an expert in AI, but we've done some work with, we've done some uh, machine learning stuff with, we're doing some RNA, fresh in, in mucosal biopsies and IBD and, We've, we've, that's, that's all done by machine learning. And, you know, it's really interesting because you're trying to predict outcome. And I think that these programs, there's different ways that AI can help you. One of the ways is that you, it can look at a data set and look at it in an unsupervised way. So it just right. says, what are the differences in the data set? What are the categories? And that can be really useful because uh, a lot of the time in medicine, what you're seeing is, is that the way we categorize stuff is probably wrong. Mm-hmm. Categories are different than actually if you looked at a huge data set and that your approach is wrong to start. And that, that's, di- that's difficult because, you know, maybe the, the subcategories are different things. A, they don't matter or they matter in a different way than you understand. And so that's kind of when you're taking, you want to take, you can take unsupervised looks and have this, a data set that goes in and the computer says, or the machine says, you know, here are the differences in what you're looking at. If you're looking at X variable, this is the categories that come out of it. And it can find categories.
0: That wouldn't have intuitively
1: thought of. Right. And so you, you find new categories. You say, okay, and then you, you try to match that stuff with outcomes. You know, the other thing you can do is you have the computer create an algorithm on a large training set to predict outcome or, it, or with outcome. And then you have a test set, right? So you've got yeah. this training set, and then you move it to a test set. And you say, okay, well, you know, these factors predicted X in this data set. The most important part of that is you move it to a new data set because you cannot you know, the big thing that I think was happening a lot in a lot of this big data is they were creating a, an algorithm and then they were re, you, we were, they were testing it on the training set. So mm-hmm. they were like, Oh, and, and when, by the algorithm that we created, Hey, look 80% of it's effective, but of course it's effective. It's in the same set you created it on mm-hmm. and you move it to a new set and you say, all right, well, how does this predict? And uh, like you said, these processes are iterative. And so that means the more data you have, the, the stronger this becomes. And then, you know, It's been really interesting working in the molecular field a little bit. And it's really, you know, that's something that I, you know, I dip my toes into. I'm not someone who's trained in that area, but because the molecules aren't wrong, right? The data is not wrong. Mm -hmm. It's only as good as what you put into it. And the molecules will never, you know, they're not subjective, they're objective. And so I think that moving to objective measures and then having these large kind of data sets is really going to improve care, it's going to have difficulty, you know? And so you can't look at every setback you have in these things as being the end of it. It's just going to take a lot of time because first of all, it's dealing with the current state of medical knowledge, which is probably fraught with inaccuracy that you don't realize. And you'll only start to see that as you kind of move out. But I mean, we're physicians. And so I think everything we do is based on evidence or the basis of what we do is on evidence. We all operate outside of evidence. We, you know, that's part of what our job is. But we're supposed to be centered in evidence, and this is just an, an expansion of that to a bigger data to big data. And you're believing further in the idea that the data will guide you. And that's mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's the biggest difference between our profession and other kind of alternative healthcare. I think is that we are we're really centered in data, and that's the, the only difference. I tell any of my patients, I say, look, if it's based in data. I'll look at it. You know, if there's good studies, I'll look at it. That's what I do. That's what we do. And and this is that next level, but it's going to be interesting. And I think physicians are scared of it. I think people think that it's going to replace jobs and change things. It'll definitely change where we're at. But I there's been other thought. I've you know read articles that this isn't going to change the number of physicians out there. It's it probably will replace what they're doing. You know, your your role will shift because computers will eventually probably be able to read slides, endoscopy, radiology. Better than a human. Right. And eventually we'll be able to. Pathology. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, some of the studies that uh, the group we're working with at the U of A is looking at, what they did was they looked at what was the categorization of renal transplant biopsies for rejection, for antibody mediated rejection, T cell mediated rejection. They looked at what, uh, or kind of damage due to drugs. So they were looking at the reasons why in a kidney transplant, that kidney transplant would fail. And they looked at the pathology. And the real problem was the pathologists didn't agree with each other at all. Right. Expert pathologists looked at the same slide and they had a very low intra-observer agreement. And that means for you know, the, the audience out there, how often do those two people say, yeah, that's the problem? It was really low. And so what they did was they wanted to, this whole project was done to drive forward a different way of looking at things, a higher level of resolution where you would say, how can we make this something that's quantitative rather than qualitative and how can we get something that's reproducible and that's what Ab- more that. objectivity yeah and it was reproducibility right if you get the computer to look at that biopsy and so you know they were looking at rna that means the the messenger signals in the tissue that were doing things what what's kind of actively happening in that tissue when they looked at it that way they were able to say this is reproduced computer will tell you the same answer every single time right and then they went back And they were able to recategorize what were some of the path features associated with the categorization that the machine gave you that actually didn't matter and what did. And you could go backward and say, you know what, some of this stuff that you think matters in this tissue biopsy, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Artifact. You're picking up stuff that is not associated with anything or associated with something else. And that kind of process is so important in medicine because it helps you redefine your gold standard. Mm -hmm. right and i think we're stuck in a lot of medical fields with a very bad gold standard and so again for the audience the gold standard is what you reference everything wrong right so for me endoscopy is the gold standard for ibd how you look on endoscopy is really the way that i determine the disease but the question is is that the disease not really the disease is your t-cell activity and what's happening in your immune system but i can't measure that Accurately, no. and so you know our gold standards are never perfect, and so that's that's a challenge. But it helps you redefine your gold standard, and so I think the process will be great. But we're going to have to all approach it with an open mind, but also heavy skepticism to make sure the studies are done right. And mm-hmm. in these big data sets, that's a, that's an issue: is that you have to have people who are masterful at stats and looking at data.
0: And and to reinforce to, qual- you have to have quality data. You have to be able mm-hmm. to trust it. If this data set says Elroy Cohen has hypertension the damn them as well ha- better have hypertension you know what i mean like so it's it's you're only it could be only as good as the data that you provided and you can provide
1: with that data set like hopefully what happens is in those algorithms they will say that algorithm will usually tell you how often it's true, accurate actually. or inaccurate and so yeah, that's, that's nice, true you know and so yeah. there still will be a point in all this where it's going to be wrong but you're, you're hoping that those operating characteristics the sensitivity and the specificity the sensitivity is how often something being negative rules it out Specificity being how often something positive rules it in, those things you want to be get higher and higher so that you're really very few people are falling outside of it. Yeah. We do this all the time as physicians, but it's not something that we're as aware of. And this just kind of takes it to a process that's got a bigger data set. It's just gonna outperform you.
0: And you know what the other element I think I might be talking out of my backside here, but one of the things that I think AI and machine learning is going to offer, I'm gonna have a better sense of who's gonna benefit from my therapies. In other words, you know, you got Elroy Cohen and Nancy Armstrong, both have high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. I have 15 different medications I could prescribe. Okay. But based on the their phenotype or the, the way that based on the machine learning algorithm, it looks like they're going to respond better to medication A compared to B. And so I can, and instead of trial and error, I'm going to be able to give them medication a hydrochlorothiazide. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and to me, that's the future of medicine. I don't want to be starting all these like medications where this patient's unlikely to benefit, especially when there's alternatives. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I'm i hoping this is also where AI and machine learning could take us.
1: Absolutely. You know, in the fields that I work in, especially in inflammatory bowel disease, when I first started and I was a resident in GI, just learning about IBD, there was essentially, you know, it was just really entering Biologics were becoming mainstream, so the biologic therapies are antibodies, humanized antibodies for the most part that we give to help balance immune pathways that are out of whack. So we're trying to bring those immune systems down. We're trying to balance those pathways. These are expensive medications; they're brand new. And there was really two. There was infliximab, which was a chimeric antibody, which is a little bit of mouse protein and human protein. That was the that came in and changed the disease. So you went from people who were getting steroids and really old school cancer therapies like methotrexate and azathioprine these were old chemo drugs that are being used in an anti-inflammatory anti-inflammatory capacity and steroids and surgery so people were doing terribly these diseases disabled people endless surgeries depression steroid related psychosis all these things happened. and it was it was a they were awful diseases massively augmented by the advent of biologic less surgeries better quality of life mm. everything improved but Still a lot of room to move. You know, not everybody got better. There was only one therapy. And there's a lot of immune complications that can happen. So we had to really learn how to use those. Second therapy, Adalimumab came out shortly after that. That was a sub-Q version. You could give an injection at home. Mm-hmm. And so, but they were the same class of drugs. So it was kind of an easy algorithm, right? If people got, were sick, you gave them the initial therapies, steroids, 5-ASAs, uh, azathioprine. That's what we called the con- conventional therapies. If they were really sick, we got them coverage to give them a biologic and there were two types same class that was all it was easy you optimize that otherwise you said well i don't know we'll do put you in a clinical trial now there are four or five different classes of biologics there's new small molecules that are coming out Janus kinase inhibitors it's a a brand new kind of thing we're getting used to there's all this option and these therapies are incredibly expensive
2: mm-hmm.
1: but we don't have good predictive algorithms and so what you're talking about is you know, this idea of Theranostic, you know, there's diagnostic tests to say, what do you have? What's going on? And then there's Theranostic tests to say, what will you respond to? What's the best therapy for you right now? Now we know we have certain classes of meds for someone who's moderate to severe, but to say who's going to respond well to those meds, we're really struggling with that. And the placement of those meds in the Theranostic algorithm is difficult. And then the next challenge is what the government will let you do, right? We're in a public payer space. You can't just do whatever you want anymore. They, they're looking at that and they're, they're tearing these things. And, and so it's, it's complicated on multiple s- scales, but to go back to the medical side of it, it's, you're exactly right. To put someone on an incredibly expensive drug for six months, nine months where they're not doing well, the drugs don't having a great effect. That's, that's difficult. And we, we want to be better than that. Not only that, but in IBD, it's a destructive condition. I kind of mentioned that a, late, earlier in the cast that, We think that there's probably a two to three year window in Crohn's disease where we can really change outcome without surgery. Mm -hmm. After that, you move into a fibrotic, destructive part of the disease where surgery is going to probably be a big part of that algorithm. And surgery is an excellent tool. In no way have our medications removed that. But we try to use it sparingly because surgical complications are still a huge thing for our patients, especially Mm -hmm. in the acute setting. And the long-term things, people get scars in the abdomen. They get adhesions, and that can become a bigger problem than the disease. So we're trying to treat people well, accurately within a short window of time, and that's hopefully where these tests will will look. It's just a, it's just really difficult to to understand that because you need big data sets of patients to say who responded to this therapy well. How did you gauge that response? It's it's complicated, but I think that's really where medicine has to go. That's the challenging area that we're moving into.
0: And exactly, I I think it just. It's going to need buy-in. It's going to need a bit of focus. I know in Ontario, we're getting, we we're blessed with the ICES data like group that is a huge data set that allows us to evaluate tons of Ontarians. And I mean, it's basically built my research career using that, the data available there. But this is a future. We need to embrace it. And I think there's just, it's just too much benefit from being able to be more accurate in our care. Would you call that, that bad boy theragnostic? Theragnostics, yeah. I'm getting Theranostic going <laughs> on with y'all. I think you know, it's I'm not sure of- where that term uh,
1: comes from. I do a lot of work with, um, you know, shout out to Big Phil. My father is, uh, obviously does a huge amount of work in this area. And that's something that they throw that term around. They've got this, they've worked very much on that kind of diagnostic and Theranostic algorithm in transplant and really have tried to push new ways of looking at that and the theranostics is a term i've heard them use. i'm not sure who came up with that term but <laughs> it
0: out to well, be- oh man but if your dad made it like he has the authority to make it up like uh, oh he's I don't been- know uh <laughs> dr phil halloran he's order of canada that's it? right canada? yeah
1: like- this I mean, and let's 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 clip his wings here. I mean, it's not the top tier. You know, he's not like getting that. He's not waving that Wayne Gretzky order. He's in the middle. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah like, I'll, I'll I always, know. I always make sure people know that. I'm like, yeah, but before you get too excited, it's not, it's not the best one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I mean, the thing I also I like too about what we're talking about is the economic piece. Not throwing kitchen sink at somebody. Yeah a, very a this expensive, is the like, next a sense, right? Like, yeah. give a sense of how much are we talking about some of these medications?
1: These medications cost between twenty and forty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean, and, and remember that this is like uh, one person. It's one person. It's and I mean, it can be higher than that. I can probably pull you up the data. I actually have this, uh, again, my wonderful, talented uh, master's student, Candice. She did her master's with me. And for, for a number of reasons, she had already been doing some work on health economics. And so she said with me and, and a, a couple other people help supervisor, I supervised her from the inflammatory bowel disease perspective, because that's what it was all based in. We had a health ec- economist at the U of A work with us, and she did her master's in health economics, and mm-hmm. as it applies to IBD. And the reason was that we really it's on us to show that we're making a difference with regard to the economic of this disease and that we can show that aggressive therapy works well and that it makes sense economically and to also understand how these therapies compare to each other in terms of their cost and their their cost is huge yeah it's a lot of cake man it's and and physicians have to i think have that as part of their thought process. You know, that's something that I think, you know, when you look at the Royal College or the training requirements, there there has to be a thought of allocation of resources. But we're in a new era where drugs are incredibly expensive. They are incredibly effective or they're more effective than they were, but they're expensive.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: these costs, you know to give you an idea of it, biologic therapy, therapies I'm talking about for IBD, for 1% of the prescription, medically that are made in the province. Their cost is 30%. Wow. Of the, bu- of the, of the medical, medical the medication budget.
0: 30%. The medica- wow.
1: Yeah, it's massive. It's, and, and, the, and the docs have to be aware of this. And you know, we all are advocates for our, our patients. There's no question. And you always want to give the best therapy. You want to try your hardest, but we have to be mindful of what we're doing because we're in a public payer system. And we have to be aware of the resources that are spread incredibly thin. We don't all work in a silo. We're all working in the same system. And you have to be incredibly aware of what the costs are here. And they are enormous. Yeah. You know, our government pays for education. They pay for roads. They, you know, they pay for our healthcare system. There's other costs. And, and, you know, and, and you know this as well, right? You work in the ICU. This is, oh,
0: man.
1: This is incredible costs. and, and 1% of your
0: gross to- domestic product. Literally, one percent of your gross domestic product takes care is uh, responsible for taking care of ICU patients,
1: it, which is unbelievable, right? And so we all have to look back at all the things and say, and it, you know, health economics aren't always going to factor into every decision you make, but yeah. we're we're having to be more responsible. And you know, in Alberta, been all over the news recently that they're switching people from the name brand to the biosimilar, which is kind of the it's not really a generic because these are biologic product, and there was a big uproar about this, you know, and you have to wear different hats when you look at those problems and you have Mm -hmm. to really understand the cost that goes into it. And I think you, you have to still work in, work in those constraints.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and just to be clear for the listeners, we're not saying, Oh, patient, our patient needs this medication, deny it, deny them that we feel like it's going to be beneficial, but there are times that either there's going to be a cheaper option. That's just as good, or the best evidence or best practice will tell you that it's it's they're unlikely gonna benefit. So there's opportunities there to be smarter in our decisions and, and be more thoughtful when it comes to the resource piece of that. So
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. It's it's really about working in the systems and you know, I don't think it's about you're not trying to limit patients' care, no. but you have to understand that this is not a bottomless pit that this stuff comes out of, that there is a limit to this, and you have to try to work in the systems and you have to work with government and the payer without approaching it saying, well, I just want to do what's best for my patients. You want to do what's best for all patients. And for all patients, what that means is that you, you want to do something that's going to give best therapy and also allow you to treat the most patients with a budget that continues to allow medicine and medical care to advance um, and bring in new things. Because if your current budget's breaking all spending, then you can't move on to brand new things that are going to be more expensive. And so it's it's a it's a real balance I think between all those really complicated factors but biologic therapy man it is incredibly expensive it's changed the disease like I said but it's also become big and you know moving on from that there's all these immunotherapy now in cancer
0: mm-hmm. you know so it's crazy it is crazy dog listen we need to do this again I can't wait to hear what the feedback is because. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've co- we've covered a broad range of topics from no, this,
1: yeah. physician wellness to you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. health economics. It's been exactly. a
0: real. It's no, no, to this is uh, this would be definitely a, a two parter, I believe. But I, I, I'm just interested to hear what people's opinion is on the, <laughs> the lightness of the, like, you know, us being us. But you know, this, uh, this you is this part you. of the show, though. Dog, is to be authentic. Let yeah, people shine. This is this part of. <laughs> I, won't, I won't lie to you. This is. Having a conversation like this is what it's made this experience of podcasting so enjoyable like right. i i've just spent an hour and a half with my boy brenda and i have been smiling i've been laughing i've been i've, I've had some insights into how i want to approach medicine and my research and this is beautiful and so i want to i want to thank you brendan yeah. Dr. I mean, Hallibrand. You know,
1: it's a pleasure to be here. I want to tell you I've been so impressed with uh the things you've been doing. Uh not only in this podcast, but you know, career-wise the trajectory you've taken, it's been uh, it's inspirational to watch you uh, do your thing. Oh, and sure. you know, and I think that this kind of discussion is a nice thing to put out there. You know, when you have different healthcare professionals, patients, that sort of thing having a voice and uh coming on and talking about different topics, it's uh it's I think that's really important that dialogue is is so important with all the things that are happening where I can ha- hear from people and agree or disagree with them. But that dialogue is so important.
0: Oh, I appreciate that, man. And you keep doing those special things. Stopping out IBD, karate chopping <laughs> IBD in the pelvis. You know what I'm saying? Cross kicking all Crohn's into traffic. <laughs> Not the patients, the disease. No, no the know? disease we're talking <laughs> yeah. about. It's awesome, buddy. Thanks so much. And we're right. definitely doing this again.
1: Man, I, anytime, I'm happy to do it. I think it's phenomenal. Loving the show and uh, keep your energy
0: up. No doubt. We no doubt. It. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for listening to episode 55 with Dr. Brendan Halloran. Please, if you got any comments, leave them at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at quadcast. Check out the links to the approach to low-carbon ketogenic diets. You guys are going to love the online summit, August 9th. Please join us, 3.30. Tickets are in the show notes. And guys, everyone out there, stay healthy, stay beautiful, and uh, we'll connect again real soon. Peace.